Welcome to From What If to What Next, a key piece of national, international even, imagination infrastructure. The podcast we may well yet look back upon as having played a vital role in the imagination renaissance that came to define the 2020s. We'd like to think so. Here we believe in extraordinary. We believe that anything is possible and we exist to flood your imagination with self-belief and some radical playfulness. We do so partly thanks to that noble race of people we call Patreon subscribers, thought by some to be mythical. They are in fact very real and quite extraordinary people who play an active and vital role in the existence of this podcast, giving us just £3 a month, which enables us to work wonders and create the very, very best podcasts we can. We love them. And they'd love you to join them too at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. Thank you. This episode of this podcast is going to be so good. I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Today we're talking about gender. I grew up in a society that thought in terms of two genders, you were male or you were female, and there were a, that was accompanied by expectations that men were supposed to behave in ways that were masculine and women in ways that were seen to be as being feminine. If you were being someone who didn't identify as either or someone who challenged society's expectations of what being masculine or feminine meant, it was a pretty bleak time. And in many other cultures around the world, far bleaker still, indeed very dangerous. Some cultures recognise a third gender. But what would it be like if we were to see gender instead as a spectrum? And where you choose to place yourself on that spectrum is up to you and can even change as often as you like. What if society accommodated, supported, nurtured even, such a degree of fluidity? What if everyone could be who they wanted to be and define themselves however they wanted to and the kind of abuse that so many LGBTQI plus people experienced instead was replaced by a culture that valued people wherever they are across that spectrum? What wonders might such an approach unlock in our culture? And so our question for today's podcast is what if the future were non-binary. My guests today are both amazing. Sid Yang is a mixed-race Taiwanese-American queer trans CF non-binary healer, intuitive counsellor and writer who weaves together magic, possibility and intention as an energy healer in the world through their practice Blue Jaguar Healing Arts. Sid is also the Senior Advisor for Healing Justice and Wellness at Movement Voter Project, Sid's work finds its resonance in the stories we each hold at the intersection of memory, body, sexuality and mental health. Sid works primarily with queer and trans BIPOC individuals as well as regularly leads workshops, community healing circles and has been a group facilitator for over two decades with a specific focus on grief, healing ancestral trauma, sexuality and spirituality, body liberation and eating disorder recovery. Their recent memoir, Release a Bulimia Story, reimagines what recovery for marginalised bodies could look like without shame. And Mafam Malek has held many roles in justice movements over the years, including facilitator, somatic coach, non-profit staff of many stripes, social justice-oriented stand-up comic, direct action and cultural organiser, environmental educator and more. In addition to training, facilitating and coaching, they write, organise with a group of abolitionist, diasporic Iranians, hang out with their dog and chat on the phone nearly daily about absolutely nothing with their parents. 
They're also the training and operations director at the Chicago Torture Justice Center, which to my great shame I knew nothing about. Google it. We should all really know about uh, why Chicago needs a torture justice center. Their practice is shaped largely by their training and years of somatic development and leadership development with progressive training institutions such as Generative Somatics, Rockwood Leadership Institute and Training for Change. Additionally, they call on their history in dance, performance, meditation and working in US-based justice movements and on their experience as an immigrant, queer, non-binary, mixed-class woman of colour. Welcome both to From What If to What Next. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So today is a day when uh, I'm uh, fascinated to step into our time machine. We do this every episode, but I'm setting the controls today for 2030, flooded with curiosity. Sid, Mafan, I'd like to invite you both to close your eyes and to get comfortable. And do join us in this at home if you'd like to. I'd like you to imagine that thanks to my time machine here, which I have to say is wreaking havoc with my electricity bills, but it's worth it. We are all travelling forward in time. The next nine years pass us by almost in a flash. And the 2030 that we find ourselves in is one that is deeply transformed. It's now radically decarbonized, more just, more equal, more beautiful, more diverse, a more fair and accepting society It's amazing. The changes you both worked so hard to bring about in the early 2020s have been realised. Congratulations. It's now a world which is truly non-binary and that runs through education, policy making, employment, economics, the media, everything. I'd love you both to describe the world that you see. Can you bring it alive for us in all of its senses and sensations. Can you paint us a picture of what it would be like to spend a day in the life in that world, to walk down the street in that world? Sid, maybe could we start with you? Sure, thank you for this invitation. And it's exciting to be in 2030. As I think about 2030, I'm also getting ready to celebrate soon, you know, getting closer to my 60s, which feels overwhelming, but exciting to be alive in this moment because the world is so much more possible. What I love about this moment is that finally, across industries, there is equal pay for equal work. People's labor is not limited or connected to um, prescribed gender but is really much more expansive. And so we see so much destigmatization in labor and the ways and the choices that people have. And it's exciting to see young people in 2030 being able to make choices around their bodies, around their desire, around where they want to engage with the world because they've been in this education system that's happening right now that honors the different ways that they learn. So students have options and young people have options. So as I'm walking down the street, you know, young pe- there's young people around all the time because some of them have access to education spaces and learning spaces that are outside of four walls that are rooted in experiential practice that are maybe online, and not limited to certain timeframes or deadlines or that they learning has to happen within a certain way or a certain structure. And so what we're seeing in that also is this expansion out of um, 
compassion. <laughs> that sounds like really cheesy, but it's, it's real. It's happening <laughs> in 2030. Um, and I think a big part of that is, you know, when we're looking at public spaces at this time, architecture and design has shifted. That spaces are much more open and engaging and interactive. That people have access to spaces and access to each other in a way that feels safe, that feels sacred, that feels rooted in exploration and experimentation and possibility as opposed to expectations or conforming. I think there's two, two other things that maybe aren't as visible in this world of 2030, but I'm really excited about is that because of this, this way that our entire society and political structures have reframed by centering non-binariness and decentering a binary gender structure is that we're now rooted in a deeper sense of intersectionality, a deeper sense of understanding the breadth and width and depth of people, of spaces, of histories, that we're looking at people not just as who, where their gender is, or fitting them within a category of gender, it's kind of lazy to do it that way. And we learned that pretty quickly in our society, hopefully. <laughs> so to get us here in 2030, and we're like, we don't wanna be lazy anymore. How do, we, how do we hold people and spaces as whole entities? And so in this space, we're understanding people with that complexity. So if you go to the doctor, your experience with the doctor or your experience with the healthcare practitioner is totally different. So what comes in is not this like quick 15 minute, like, oh, here's your, I'm gonna like prescribe you this or uh, diagnose you with this. This is your problem because you're in a quote female body or you're in a male body or you're 25 years old or you're 55 years old. Instead, it becomes a relationship and a conversation. And so going to the doctor is about studying what is your history? What is your relationship to space? What is your relationship to power? What is your relationship to trauma? How are we negotiating that and understanding that in the body? And it becomes then that healthcare and care becomes very personalized, but very intersectional to who a person is and how we move through the world. And so what that has led to is that the systems <clears throat> that rape culture and diet culture, the ways that they took up space in 2020s, early on in our history, but they're not here anymore, right? Where there's vestiges of them, there's memories of them, but it's not how we operate in our interpersonal relationships and in our relationships to our own bodies and our relationships to each other in medical spaces, um, in political spaces, there is this sense of agency that all bodies have been able to reclaim. And so to be in that world is to, um, or to be in this moment, right, in 2030, means that as somebody who's approaching 60, that I get to be in spaces and move through spaces and I'm not invisible. I am seen, I am respected, um, both by young people as well by those who are older than me. As a trans non-binary being 
who is mixed race, who is Asian American, that I carry with me histories that people are curious to learn about. And there are spaces for me to share them in ways that are generative and creative and fun, right? So like we're having more fun. Because we're bringing our whole beings into these spaces. And, and again, like, I think the, the piece of talking about like architecture, it's totally changed. So who has access to these new interactive spaces where we're co-learning, co-creating together, being in an abolitionist future, we all have access to that. And it's constantly evolving, right? So the more we engage with these external spaces, the more we're engaging with each other, the more we're learning. And I just feel like I wake up every morning in 2030 in this, in this decade, excited for what new things I'm going to be learning about myself, what new possibilities are emerging and being birthed in the political arenas around us, and the possibilities for young people to root their, their beingness around the wholeness and complexity of who they are um, and rooting in desire and being able to really come from a place of who am I? Um, what do I desire? And be able to move forward from that place and that our structures support that. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much. Uh, Mafam. Well, first of all, I'm loving listening to you, Sid, because we live in the same 2030, you and I. <laughs> That's also where I live with you. So I'm walking out of my house in the morning in 2030, and where I'm going is to a community space, a collective space. And this space has a community garden. It has fruit trees. It has a center that's just a gathering space where people can hang out, play instruments, make music, make art, be together, be somewhere that is not their home, but where they get to be with their community and with each other. That's, that's first on my agenda today. So I'm walking to my community space, and once I get there, I'm really struck by what feels different in this moment compared to about a decade ago in my life. And I'm trying to put my finger on it. And it's like something has shifted in the mainstream in regard to how we, um, how we see each other. There's no, I don't feel anymore, at least in my communities, that there's a sense that some people are worthy and others aren't, or that some people are good and some people are bad, or that if you do something bad, that that means that you get a big, I don't know, X on you, and that puts you in a particular category for the rest of your life. We're not operating that way anymore. The way we're operating now is every person, every body is worthy is good, deserves dignity, just gets to exist and, and have access to the things that really ultimately make us human, which is, you know, we could break it down and say, these services, these rights, 
these structural things you should have access to, like housing and healthcare. And maybe I'll say more about that in a moment. But really, first, it's we feel safe. We feel connected. We feel like we belong. And, and we each have our own sense of dignity and we honor each other's dignity just the way we are. And that, to me, feels like a really remarkable shift from a decade ago. I credit movements. I credit the prison abolition movement and trans and queer liberation movements and disability justice. Disability justice teaching us always there's no such thing as some bodies are normal and right and others have something wrong with them or that they need to repair. It's that we're all good and we all deserve everything we need to be able to live our full lives. We have the resources. It's all right here. Why can't we just take care of each other? Um, and all this, of course, being really connected with anti-war movements, which also connects to climate change, because really, as resources have shifted, there was a point where we were like, we can't actually have resource wars anymore. Like, this isn't working. We can't keep killing people for oil. We can't keep trying to privatize water. We're, we're hitting a real limitation here with how many of these resources can get shuffled around to people with money. We have to change our relationship to resources. And then we did because we had to, because humans had to survive. And if there's one thing we know how to do, it's survive. To me, it still feels like the early days, but it feels like very hopeful days of shifting from surviving to thriving together. I have so much more I could say, but that's, <laughs> I could stop there. That's fine for now. Thank you. That was glorious. That was so beautiful. Thank you both. I think it would be really useful uh, for listeners to hear your experiences of how it is to live as someone who identifies as a non-binary person in the world that has yet to make that shift. Uh, Mafa, maybe we could start with you. I'm chewing on the second part of your question that says in a world that has yet to make that shift. Um, because I know that's true in some places. And I also feel very lucky to be a part of spaces where it hasn't even felt like a dramatic shift, really. It's that we're coming back to the knowledge that people like us have always existed. There have always been people who don't fall into category A or category B. And in fact, don't agree with the framework of category A and category B, right? So living in the world as a non-binary person now, certainly there are challenges. There are, for me, challenges in terms of feeling like I can be my whole self in different spaces, everywhere from my own family and culture of origin and, and those communities to walking down the street and depending on my presentation, all the assumptions that people make about how to interact with me from, from very subtle, maybe we use the term microaggressions here, from that level to like actually quite overt violence that uh, gets directed at people who are read as women or gender variant in any way. There are challenges, but I find it so interesting that I first went to the spaces where this is just in the range of human experience, being non-binary. I feel lucky to be a part of spaces that get that. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's non-binariness. Um, 
being outside of the binary of man or woman or male and female has existed um, forever. It exists in the animal kingdom. We are part of that animal kingdom. So it exists within um, human spaces as well. And um, the ways I like to see how it's showing up in some of the spaces and many of the spaces that I inhabit as well is that it's a moving beyond who I am as a physical body, how I'm perceived by others and how my identity or value is um, predicated on somebody else's acceptance or understanding. Spaces that allow me to come in as a whole complex layered uh, being. And so it holds, you know, I think there's what I dream of and what I long for and what I move towards. Um, and what I'm hopefully co-creating in the healing spaces I'm, I'm working in is that we hold the complexity of bodies, of lived experiences, of ways we negotiate space, how we understand privilege and oppression in our bodies, how that shows up, what are the different care practices that we have access to or lean into. And I think for me, as a trans non-binary person, that there's ways that because that isn't the norm, that I feel this hunger, this longing to be in spaces where I can breathe, where I can exhale. And so I lean into like, who's co-creating those spaces? What are the communities where these conversations are alive, where these practices are in place or are being in practice, right? Um, and where can I be a part of that? Because the more that I can have spaces to breathe, the more free that I actually am for freedom I'm actually able to access, the more free I'm able to feel. And for me, like this is the, I've spent so much of my life in childhood feeling constrained and being asked to conform to certain ways of being, of presentation, even just there's ways that, you know, I was told you walk like a boy, can you not walk like that? Move your feet this way, that's, that's more girl, like, ladylike and just my body being like, I don't understand what you're talking about. I'm just walking. <laughs> and so there's this, my body holds these stories of constraint. Um, and so I want to move away from ways I have to conform and ways that I can be expansive into ways I can be expansive. Right. And even just talking about this right now, like when we talk about like being non-binary or being tra trans for me is, is expansive. It's about being invited into a body that is bigger than and much broader than it was told it was, it could be. And I don't think that that's just for trans and non-binary people. I think all genders, all bodies have this expansiveness, but we're not given that invitation or the permission to touch into or to lean into that possibility of wholeness. Um, and so all the systems, if we, we change all the systems around gender, around non-binariness, we you know, abolish the binary in all the, in all the spaces, then everybody has more space to be free. And everybody has more, and everybody has more space to breathe and exhale and expand out and be like, oh, Wait, I can take up space. I can maybe lean into this desire and there's possibility around that and access to that and there's resources for that. 
like that feels exciting to me. And so I feel like I'm living my life in this, like on one hand, yeah, there's, there is the experience of being constrained by political systems, by social systems, by religious systems. And at the same time, being able to be in communities and movements where that is being dismantled and being reconfigured. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how how that non-binary future would talk about gender. Is it even helpful to talk about male and female? Do we need more ways to self-identify than he, she and they? What would kind of expanding and nurturing that, that spectrum look like? So there's this, this way that if we can, we can just, just tiny shifts in our language. I think it creates new possibilities. So instead of saying man or woman, saying person. And even just that one vocabulary shift creates possibility, right? So there are people here, right? Which means there's a diversity. And so if we talk about the natural world, that we think about biodiversity and how ecosystems need biodiversity to thrive, right? That if we think about gender as a form of biodiversity, I like to think that that's actually what creates sustainability as well as possibility. And to go back to what Mahan said earlier, like going from that place of survival to thriving, right? I think that we, if we think about gender as biodiversity and that like we actually need more than just two in order to thrive. One of the things that I really love to think about and like read about is like historically in a lot of indigenous cultures, when we think about the, there was never just the, just the male and female, there was, you know, or man and woman, the diversity of gender expression and and understanding of gender also expanded out roles of who we are with each other, who we are in our cultural spaces, who we are in our religious spaces, who we are in social spaces. And so it gives possibility. And so if we can think of gender, I think in a non-binary world, gender, gender wouldn't go away. It just wouldn't be the categories that we just easily just go, oh yeah, you're over here, or you're in this box, or you're in this box. Because that's lazy, right? Just saying, oh, this is for man and woman. That's lazy. Designating bathrooms, male and female or man and woman, is lazy, right? (laughs) It's just, they're bathrooms. All bodies use them and need them. And it's just, it's a weird way of separating. And separation is a form of harm and because it's a form of disconnection. And so I think if we can think about gender more as a ecosystem, and what are our relationships to each other within that? And how does gender, both expression and under, like lived experience, like how does that, what are the different places that we hold to create the whole and vibrant ecosystem that is, that is required for us to survive? Thank you. Mafam? Sid, as you were talking, I was really thinking about how there's no one way to be any gender. There's no one way to be non-binary or trans or male or female or any of it. There's no one way to relate or not relate to a spectrum. 
sometimes people see non-binary as, okay, there's a spectrum with male on one side and female on the other. So you're maybe somewhere in between or shifting back and forth. For me personally, my experience of being non-binary is looking at that spectrum and going, I reject this framework. Like this isn't relevant to me. It could be relevant to others. I don't throw it out for others, right? But for me, I look at it and I go, this just reminds me too much of systems of patriarchal oppression, frankly, that says on this side is the one with the power who makes the decisions and gets to do kind of what they want. And on this side is their... Is the other one, <laughs> the one who gets to help the male fulfill their their everything from bearing the babies to keeping the home to whatever else. I know that's really simplified, but that's that's what I see when I look at the spectrum, and I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. So for me, it's just that framework doesn't work. So I think a non-binary world would talk about gender in a way that says your body is good whether it wants to have sex or not have sex is fine. Who it wants to or doesn't want to have sex with, any of that is fine. How you want to do it, as long as it's, you know, consensual and everyone involved is up for it, it's fine. How you want to dress yourself, up to you. If you want to make modifications to your body that make you feel more like you, go for it. If you don't, don't do it. Just this really liberated way of saying your body is you so no one's here to tell you that it's right or wrong no one else can put any value on it and you get to choose how you do your relationships with other people you get to get in together and go how do we want to do this there's no prescribed power dynamics there's no expectations put on you by family culture anyone else Humans are just liberated enough to own their own experience in the ways that they present and they don't have to explain it. And then they can interact with each other how they like based on that. I feel like that's the talk that my parents should have given me and never did. <laughs> Could I jump in with one more thing? Yeah, I do, Sid, yeah. Mahan, what you were just talking about, just where my brain was going, I was like, oh, what if? Like part of this the way that in this non-binary world, there's no more gender reveal parties, right? <laughs> so that just gets like, like, what is that? That was some weird thing that people did. We're not going to do it anymore. <laughs> um, but instead, we're like, oh, look, you have a child. <laughs> and my work as a parent or our work as a community who's helping to raise this, this child or these children is to teach children how to be curious, to ask questions, to be in a state of wonder, around like, ooh, what is my desire? What am I, what do I like? How do I want to express? How do I want to present and to be able to experiment and play from that place of wonder and curiosity? I'm curious of like what that could have looked like for me as a child. But then if we had a whole generation of kids and young people who their way of engaging with their own bodies, with each other, with relationships, um, with their desire, with the world, with politics, was from this place of, well, we start from curiosity, not from it's supposed to be this, right? And right now with gender, we teach kids, this is a boy and this is a girl. And how often, you know, young people come to me or come to my friends, or I know this is not, this is a very common experience. Are you a boy or a girl? We teach kids to 
root in these categories that aren't actually real. And so what if it was this curiosity of, huh, tell me about who you are. Let me tell you about who I am. Let's create space for something new. If this person or this experience is something I haven't encountered yet, how do I get bigger and bigger and bigger? And that feels kind of like there's a, there's a tingly aliveness to that when I think about it. It feels, it feels kind of delicious. Yeah. Delicious is a good word. And I think like that feels like when things are alive, like, you know, like when you have a wound and it's starting to heal and it's like itchy and tingly, you know, that like new cells are growing, right? There's new life that's emerging. That's what it feels like. The theme of this podcast is around imagination and how it might be that we might set about creating the most imaginative world possible, the best conditions for the collective imagination to flourish. I wonder how you might see the link between moving to a non-binary future and the expansion of the collective imagination, how, how you see that one would, would unlock the other. Uh, Mafam? Being non-binary is inherently creative because on the one hand there's hey here's the mainstream framework or ideas that don't work for me so there's that but we can't just reject things we have to create something new as we go and non-binary people queer people trans people we're doing this all the time I think as society moves toward deeper understanding of non-binary people, people all in the alphabet soup spectrum, not just, you know, for a while the language was like tolerance, which always kind of bummed me out. I don't want to be tolerated. I want to be embraced and celebrated and understood. And I want the beauty in my community to be seen First, because it's just gorgeous and we are worthy and delightful and bring so much beauty to life. But secondly, because there's a real embodied way that my communities teach people how to be free. We show people by the way that we, in the ways that we are ourselves, our full selves, and especially in the face of really oppressive conditions, still are so committed to being gorgeous and creative and loving and musical and fashionable and not just those cliche things either, like sneakily creative in the administrative work that we do in our organizations or in the ways that we take care of our homes and families and animals and plants. Like, there's just this way that everything we do is so creative and liberatory because it has to be, because it's in the face of systems trying to say, no, don't do it that way, fit into this instead. And it's like, we're bursting with this exuberant, I'm alive and it's creative and you have to imagine that there's a better future beyond this. And I think that if people who don't identify as belonging to queer communities, et cetera, if, if there could really be an embrace of that, that there's a real visceral learning that we can get 
human to human, body to body. Oh, that's what it's like to walk freely. That's what it's like to let yourself bring your imagination and your desire and your vision with you every day, no matter what. Yeah, I want that. We can actually feel that, pick that up from each other. And in that way, expand how we're thinking about how we do everything, all of us. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Sid? Yeah, I think the this piece around imagination is so important. Yeah, I think as humans, we're like, oh, we can be imaginative. We're watching movies and creative art. We're accessing art all the time. And it's this, you know, we're always in imagination. And yet when it comes, I think, to our own worlds or our own lives, sometimes that imagination gets really tiny and small. And in the recovery work that I do around eating disorder recovery in particular, with the clients and spaces I'm in, the core piece of recovery is about can we imagine that the impossible is possible? Can we lean into and even start to think about what that impossible is? And for a lot of folks in recovery, the other side of recovery, of not living with an addiction, not living with an eating disorder, doesn't feel possible because our bodies don't know how to navigate the world without these tools or these coping mechanisms or these strategies. And so in order to get through recovery, you have to believe and somehow imagine that this body can have a different experience. And so a lot of those practices that I do with clients and I do in that space and I do with myself is about making space to pause and making space to imagine, even if it feels really weird, (laughs) um, whether that's through writing or it's through meditation or other contemplative practices. And then it's also about not just having the space to imagine that impossible, but also to start to practice and experiment with what that could look like or feel like or smell like or taste like in my own body, in my own relationships, in my own spaces. And having, like, how do we give people the opportunities to stop and pause and contemplate and imagine? And at the same time, to be able to take what what bubbles up in those quiet spaces or in those contemplative moments and start to put them into practice. Whether that's practices around how we engage with our bodies around gender, how we engage with capitalism or disengage with it in particular, um, how we try on new things. Who are the people that we're in relationship with? What are the communities that we're building with or can be building with to start to begin to see, is this imagining that is coming up for me, is it possible? And how do we lean into or move towards it being possible? What are the other pieces that we need from other people to bring in? Because it's collective. I think that imagination has to be rooted in an understanding that our survival, our thriving, our sustainability doesn't come because one person had an idea and I imagined this new future. I have one piece to carry, but it doesn't become whole without everybody else and everybody else's imaginings. 
Wow, thank you both so, so much. This has been absolutely fantastic. And I, and uh, I just before we wrap up, I guess, just if there's anything, any last thoughts that either of you had that, that, that you wanted to share that I haven't asked you the right question for or something that is uh, anything that remains unsaid that you'd like to, to share before we, before we wrap up. Um, Sid? I think there's two, like, since... Rob, when you first asked me and invited me to this conversation a couple of weeks ago, I've been sitting with this question of like, what is a non-binary world? And the two places where my mind is going is really around how does that shift public space and public spaces? Um, And so I'm really interested in just thinking, and I don't have the answers, um, but it's opened up this whole idea of like, huh, let me look at that. (laughs) Like, How does that change transportation? How does that change the ways that we access public space. And then the second thing that's a question for me, and this has been a conversation I've had with a couple of other friends who are queer and trans, is this idea of the world is non-binary. How does that change how we date? And how does that, and can that change? And can it make it more accessible spaces for connection and intersection? I'm really curious about those two questions. Well, we'll have to return to those in future episodes then, I think. That sounds fantastic. Uh, Mafa, many last thoughts? What I'm sitting with is, I mean, also back to that first question of what does it mean to live in a non-binary world? I've been focused on the internal experience of people in that world. That's kind of where I've been. And I've just been thinking if, if we could just approach if there's any struggle or issue or something we're trying to solve that we're looking at, and it looks like there are two choices or some limited number of choices that a non-binary world looks at that and goes, actually, let's take a step back. Let's widen. Let's widen our view. Let's remember our history. Instead of trying to choose one or two or three prescriptive things, Let's imagine what we want. Let's create and generate what we want. Let's let that be the solution, what we, what's actually going to serve us and fulfill us. Thank you both so much. It's been an absolute joy and delight. So, yeah, thank you both so much for joining me today. It's been so wonderful to be in this conversation with both of you. Thank you so much for the questions. And, Sid, I've loved listening to you. It's been delightful. Same. Thank you. I'm excited for this to continue. Like, I feel like it's... Rob, I feel like what we touched into is just, it's like, it just like sprouted above the soil. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, where's it going? Where's it going? It's like inspired all these conversations I'm having with other folks. And it's, it's just so, yeah. And Mafam, hopefully we can go talk more. Wonderful. Well, also, we are about to now pay a visit to the Ministry of Imagination. So if you're listening to this and you'd like to hear more of this conversation, then do join us there. So my deepest thanks to both our guests, uh, to everybody for listening and hopefully subscribing. It really does help. To the brilliant Ben Adicott for theme music production and for making this sound so amazing. To all of the people on Twitter who engaged in a passionate and lengthy debate as to whether this episode should be called What If the future was non-binary or what if the future were non-binary you are your pedantry was much appreciated and we settled on were in the end and i hope that this episode has filled you with longing for a non-binary future and if it has then our work is done we'll see you next time mm-hmm.